This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. We have enemies within our country. I think it's a combination of demonology and psyop. The citizens are going to rise up and become deputized. I have always supported President Trump. I I like the way he talked. He reminded me of most men. Joe Biden last night in the debate, he's, it's like he's not even a human being. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represented extremism. Can you imagine repatriating all the black Americans that Pat just spoke about to Africa? Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, or even out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. And look... We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'll be your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey fam, how we doing? How we doing? How we doing? Well, here we are. Here we are. Profane faith. Uh, Man, we're into June Look at that. Uh, it's hard to believe the um, the year has gone by so quick, it feels like. Um, yeah, I, I know I've mentioned that before, but I'm just I'm always just like, wow, uh, it's June. Um, but I'm happy. I mean, it's uh, it's you know, it's warm. It's uh, it's 88 today. So if you listen to this in real time. Um, you know, it's a nice warm one. I know if those of you in the South are like 88, that's not that hot. Come on. Hey, it's the same way I feel when y'all get, when it's like 32 and y'all got like bundles of coats on <laughs> and, and sweaters and everything. I'm just like, oh man, that's still short weather, man. You know, suit. Oh, it's all relative, right? Weather, weather, weather. We talk about it a lot in the Midwest. I can only imagine if I was still living in LA because we, I never talked about the weather this much. It was in fact, I remember looking at my weather app, maybe, I don't know, once uh, a month. <laughs> um, it's crazy. I'm here checking it, you know, almost hourly. <laughs> so just some just just some differences, right, in the in the culture of um, of just, you know, d- different regions of the of the world, the U.S., and whatnot but um nevertheless uh it is if you listen to this real time again it's it's warm it's great it's good stuff although it's very dry uh the reporting that at least here in illinois that we could have what's called a flash drought meaning that uh, same things elements of drought that it just kind of came on us and you know watering restrictions i haven't seen anything yet but it i, I think they're sure to come uh, I, because I'm a lawn care nut myself, uh, I measure my, my rainfall and in at least where I'm at, I have, you know, a rain gauge in my backyard. Um, we got about an eighth of an inch earlier in the month. And then we didn't get anything else until two days ago when we got about three quarters of an inch when like a, just a rogue storm pass through um and you know drop some water on us but that was it they're saying this is the uh, one of the driest 
May uh, on record in Illinois for like at least the last 30 years. Um, or 31 years, I think. 30 plus years. Um, and it's been real dry. I mean, you can tell. I mean, it's like people's lawns are going into dormancy. Brown, I mean, there's just dust everywhere. Allergies are, are nutso right now. So, um, you know, and I, you know, I'm going back to why do I mention all this? I go back to climate change. I think there's some serious things about to befall on us. And, uh, yeah, you know, this is going to affect crops. It's going to affect food prices, which are already high. Uh, NPR, I think, reported that there was a 5% increase uh, there in, in terms of groceries and consumer buying or not consumer buying, but you know, in prices, just in things that we get on the daily. Right. You know, toothpaste, uh, mouthwash, uh, you know, toilet paper, stuff like that. You know, it's 5% increase in April. Um so, it, it, you know, I, I asked the questions like how long, you know, what's the sustainability of this financially? Because we all know um, that it's a uh, it's a big grift. In fact, I saw a tweet or not a tweet. I don't know. It was some, some meme. You know me. I'm on Instagram. I'm a big memer. Uh, and uh, one of them said, and I'm not quoting it exactly, but it talked about how it, it's, it's interesting to note that so much of the U.S. and the American way is um, a, like a big grift, a big like everything is showing that it's it's one big side hustle. Uh, in other words, people, are, you know, it, it, almost everything is trying to take advantage of you uh, in regards to taking your money. And like you got to navigate all of that and you've got to figure out, like, is this for real? Is, you know, they just trying to like, you know, sell me on something or they just trying to, you know, try to sell me some snake oil. And I, th I really resonated with that because I feel like my vigilance has had to increase on any time we go out uh, and do anything, really. Like, you know, is this really the right price? Is Am I getting the best price? Um, I had my dishwasher go out and I called someone, uh, even though I shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> and the cat came over and he was just like, yeah, it's your motor. Um, it was like $650. And I was like, $650? He's like, well, I could do it on the side for you, you know, but there's no warranty and I could do it for 300 I was like, um, no. Uh, then my oven went out and I was like, you know what? I ain't calling nobody. I used to work on these things. In fact, I shouldn't have called anybody from, for the, the dishwasher, but I, we needed it, right? Well, at least... I know why my partner, she, you know, she likes to hand wash dishes. I like to stick that thing, you know, the, the dishwasher and just stick all kinds of things in there and just wash it because brother hates doing dishes and it's a really good dishwasher. It's like quiet. It's got multiple levels and speeds and, and different, uh, uh, nozzles and sprayers in there. Uh, I used to work on those and, uh, back when I was a plumber back many, many moons ago, uh, you know, I was kind of like HVAC certified and I was like, but I just didn't have the time, right? I just didn't have the time. I was teaching, uh, I'm grading, I got stuff going on, and I was like, well, let me just call somebody. I assumed it would be under $300, um, and it wasn't. And I was like, it's just the motor? I was like, I could have replaced that. Good night. Um, so when the, the oven went out, um, I was just like, oh, no, I'm ready. It's, it was the um, igniter. I have a, uh, it, was, it was a newer oven made in 2019, so there's no pilot lights on there anymore, which is, you know, kind of nice because pilot lights, they're good, but they also bring their own problems with with that. Anyways, we can get into the nitty, nitty gritty details of DIY or culture. Um, but uh, yeah, it's um, 
It, it, it yeah, I, I looked at it and I was just like, okay, uh, there's an igniter in the in the oven that as the gas comes through, uh, it you know ignites the gas and stuff and whatnot. And so, but you know, all the reports that I was seeing and said, you know, yeah, it could be these other four things, but nine times out of ten, it's the igniter. And sure enough, um, and I bought the part for twenty seven dollars. That's what I spent on the stove. Uh, and I know that would have been an easy other six, seven hundred dollar uh, uh, expense. Just the OEM part, the original part uh, for that was two hundred and seventy five dollars. I went on Amazon. OK, I know. Say what you want about Amazon. Went on Amazon um, and, you know, typed in as like, you know, igniters or oven igniter for the Samsung. I put in the model number and boom, first one popped up, read the reviews. I was like, I'm using it and it worked. <laughs> So, uh, save myself a few hundred dollars, but I, but I feel like I don't feel, I know there's a sense of this hyper capitalistic. I'm going to take you for everything you got. If you're not watching every penny. And I get that not everybody has that knowledge. I mean, it can be intimidating going inside an oven, pulling apart different components of that. And you're thinking, right, this is a gas oven, which I love gas ovens. I don't care what you say. Electric ovens. Woo. Uh, hail to the knob. <laughs> um, uh, when we first moved in, we had we just used what was here, what the previous owner had, and I was like, "Man, this this oven sucks." Uh, I much rather use a gas oven. I know fossil fuel, climate change, the whole nine. But yo, man, cooking and I cook. Ooh, I tell you, those 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 pans react just right, and it's a convection oven, the whole nine. You know, it's got some good stuff on it. So I wasn't gonna pay more for what I paid for the damn oven for one part. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, but it's crazy. I'd, I'd be curious to know what y'all think um, as well. If you, if you fi find things just being this one big griff and hustle. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just some interesting times that we find ourselves in. And now that I'm in summer mode, I have more time to fix things. My garage door was tripping and I need to go in and fix that. So I like fixing things. I like that. I like the kind of construction-y type of work that you can do. Uh, that's that I bring... It brings me a lot of joy and it brings me a lot of satisfaction in just having the completion of something. I'm a big DIYer. Um, and that's why I say, you know, I, I really, you know, I had to go and call somebody for something that I could have done. But again, my time was being taken by these other things, which was work, which is paying the bills right now. So uh, it's interesting things. It's an interesting way of of looking at that i know you know you probably don't get in you know podcasts talking about weather and appliances and diy uh but i do recommend you have a good critical eye of who you're bringing out i mean anyone who's ever used a contractor you already know right it it can be a nightmare um of things that just the list goes on right it, you know and if you don't find the right one i mean people have gone to court and litigation and sued and all these things i mean it there there's there's a lot of folks who are out there trying to take advantage of us and chiefly corporations and then you know you can work your way down um this week fam this week i got a friend finally on the show and uh i know my shows are not the shortest but this week i got a good one it is short it's not short but it's sweet it's dense um and i think it would fit within the standard I don't know. Most standard podcasts are between, you know, 20 and 30 or 35 minutes. That's kind of the average. Um, I think we'll fit in that the upper range of that um, that that this this week. Uh, so it won't be an hour and a half, hopefully. 
Uh, I don't know how long I've been talking. I think I've probably been talking for like 10 minutes already. The time flies when you're having fun. Um, but I'm bringing on a good friend of mine, Dr. Mary Wienemann. Uh, we're colleagues at our institution. Uh, she's been instrumental in just uh, helping help me understand better components of uh, interpretation, uh, theological methods, a methodology of interpreting uh, scripture, but also theological uh, components and aspects of what that literature all means. So I've been wanting to get her on the show, finally got her on the show, uh, and that's their, the ensuing conversation. So hopefully this week, uh, or this next session here of this episode, uh, you, you'll enjoy what she has to say. She uh, does some work in the prison industrial complex. She'll talk about that. Uh, she also has critiques on feminism. She'll talk about that. Uh, and she's all around. She's a great person. And um, I was very thankful to, to have her on the show. She has a book out as well. We'll talk about that. Uh, the links for all this, as always, show notes, White Hodge Podcast. If it's first time, go check it out. All those good things. Um, she's a full professor of biblical and theological studies. Uh, she researches in the areas of theological method and theological ethics, and also engages in questions concerning religious pluralism and interreligious dialogue. She's been heavily involved uh, with uh, uh, Stateville Prison, which is our uh, nearest uh, prison, state prison, federal prison. Uh, state prison. I think it's just state prison. I don't think it's federal prison, but it's a state-run uh, penitentiary. And uh, working with uh, folks there, uh, she helped establish a program to, to get students uh, educated there and get masters and BAs. So she's doing some great stuff. Um, and I wanted to bring her on. So hopefully you enjoy this conversation. And uh, remember, keep a vigilant eye of people you know trying to take those hard-earned dollars of you. Uh, of yours and uh yeah folks stay safe stay warm and we will catch you on the flip side here we go conversation with dr veneman and i folks welcome back this is uh here we are again uh and i have a good friend with me uh, Dr. Mary Veneman and uh, I've been trying for a long time to get her on the show. Uh, her brilliance is uh, amazing. I've seen her in action and I was like, we got to get you on the show. So finally, it's summer. Finally had a chance to sit down and actually have this conversation. Doc, welcome to Profane Faith. Thank you. Um, Good well, to be here. Yeah, no, it's great to have you. Finally, this is this is this is awesome. Um, I remember when I was interviewing, and I remember you were one of the first people that I met. I don't know if you remember that, but um, I was. I think we were in uh, Boaz's office, and uh, yeah, I remember. I was like, oh man, she's she's sharp. She's on it. Um, so I was I was thankful to be your your colleague for many years before the before the great divide <laughs> happened. Um, <laughs> But uh, we can we, we can talk about that. Uh, but uh, let me ask you the question I ask everybody. What's been happening from birth to now? What has made Dr. Mary, Mary Veneman, Dr. Mary Veneman? That is a great question. So I was um, raised in a Catholic family, um, first in Kentucky and then eventually um, in the northern suburbs of Chicago. OK. Um, and, and I was raised with kind of a lot of values, not as much. We were Catholic, but kind of um, the way a lot of American Catholics are Catholic. We sort of practiced sometimes and sort of didn't other times. I certainly went through all the religious ed um, that's expected and kind of checked all the boxes um, with sacraments and everything else as I grew up. 
Um, and then I started running around with um, evangelicals in high school. Okay. Um, complicated thing for me. And um, ended up at Wheaton College. And um, at Wheaton, um, got steeped in theology um, and realized I really enjoyed talking about that. Um, I, I went in my first semester at Wheaton saying that whatever I did, I was not going to be a Bible and theology major because I did not want to be one of those people that sat around arguing about the Bible all the time. And then um, <laughs> later I found myself as a Bible and theology major. Um, and, uh, but I always kind of leaned a little bit more towards theology. Um, I had a number of really close friends that were, um, philosophy majors and one of the professors I was closest to, um, was, uh, a philosopher and another professor that I was really close to was kind of half theologian, half philosopher. So, um, <laughs> kind of always veered in that direction. Um, but the other thing that I did in college that really had an impact, um, was I did an internship at a legal aid clinic in Chicago. Okay. And um, that led to um, a big debate about whether or not I would go to law school or I would go on in theology. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the legal aid clinic internship was actually really life-changing because I had always had some ideas circling around in my head around kind of systemic injustice, but I didn't have any language for it. And I didn't even have a whole lot of for instances for it. Um, and that's what the legal aid clinic really gave me. It gave me um, kind of a window into um, how profoundly unjust our legal system is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and that's whether we're talking about um, the criminal justice system, uh, which is profoundly unjust, or whether we're talking about um, things like landlord tenant laws, things like family law, et cetera. Um, I ended up going to uh, going on in theology. I went to Fordham uh, University and lived in the Bronx for four years okay. and taught uh, some classes while I was at Fordham, uh, kind of learning how to teach um, and had a number of first generation students um, and realized and had a religiously diverse group of students and realized that I really wanted that for myself moving forward. Um, so although I had um, gone to Fordham, hoping that I would eventually land back at Wheaton. Um, probably partway through my time there, I knew that that was probably not going to be a good fit for me. Um, and I had a Wheaton professor actually tell me that I should really think about the institution that we're at. Um, and so when that, um, uh, in my fourth year at Fordham, which was a little bit early, I was dissertating, but probably not quite close enough to the end of that process, um, the institution listed a position and I realized that if I didn't apply for it, I might not see an opening again for 20 years at that institution. Yeah. Um, and the drew me to it initially were um, it had a more religiously diverse student body. It still had a Christian identity, which was really important to me at that point. And um, it was in a, it was in the city. Yeah. And it yeah. was in, and it was. And so all the things now, all the things, many of the things I loved about Fordham, and specifically about Fordham's undergraduate student body, I could see in this institution as well. So I ended up getting that position and uh, coming to Chicago. And um, it has been an eventful uh, 15 or so years since I started, but um, I've gotten the opportunity to do um, some great things while I've been there, including uh, working with incarcerated people. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And I definitely want to want to get to that. I, um, because I think that's, you know, that's, that's some powerful stuff and there's so many nuances to dealing with the, the, the issue of incarceration, recidivism, all of that. Um, 
Well, I'd be curious, like, as a woman navigating your way through evangelical, um, well, I don't know about Fordham. It's what is, how does Fordham, are they Christian? Are they not? Are they non-denominate? I can't, I don't, I don't know much about Fordham other than I know they produce some great graduates. Yes. Um, thank you. Fordham. Uh, yeah. Fordham, uh, is a Jesuit institution. Okay. And so as a Jesuit institution, it is tied, certainly tied to the Catholic church. Um, but Jesuits are often um, either beloved or scorned because they are on the far progressive side of the Catholic Church for the most part. I mean, there's definitely exceptions and there's, you know, more, you know, conservative um, groups of people within the Jesuits. But as a as an order, they tend to be a little bit more progressive. They're very focused on social justice and education. And so um, it was a great place for me to be. My department at Fordham was an amazing place to be a doctoral student. They um they really nurtured a sense of collegiality and not competition among the doctoral students, which is important. And I feel like sometimes hard to come by. Yeah. And, and one of the most influential people in the department was um, Elizabeth Johnson, who um, is one of the most well-known Catholic feminists in the United States. And so she, in a lot of ways, really set the tone for a lot of what happened in the department. And so um, I felt both as a doctoral student and as a woman treated extremely well there um, and just felt like I was in a place where I could flourish. That's that's really good. I mean, I love the 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 the, the creation, as you were saying that of of being collegial rather than competitive, because you're right. I mean, you hear a lot about that, especially at the doctoral level, um, whether it be in social sciences, uh, STEM, you know, there's this sense of competition. I got to one up people. I got to, I'm, I'm, it's, it's only about me. I got to, you know, I got to get mine, but that's, that's, uh, that's really good. And that really comes back down to just the folks who run it. Right. It's like, that's got to come from top down. Yeah. Um, now you have identified as, as a millennial, right. Uh, and yeah. what, <laughs> Talk talk a little bit about that and what your experience has been, um, it, you know, coming through at a, at a different period than Xers, Boomers, um, and obviously Gen Zers or Yers, however we want to, you know, even talk about that generation. But um, yeah, what what has your experience been in engaging that and in, in, in looking at particularly aspects of feminism within um, millennial culture, if you will? I know it's that's expansive uh, a question. You don't have to feel like, oh, I'm the only one going to be answering for this, but I'd be, I'm curious about your perspective on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm a geriatric millennial, according to the language. Um, I'm about wow. as old as you can possibly be and be a millennial. Okay. But I think what that's done, I, from the outset, and this was, I was circling around this even probably at Wheaton, um, from the outset, I had a ton of skepticism about feminism the way that it was kind of traditionally presented which is to say that if we're looking at second wave feminism it it's highly problematic in all kinds of ways i think largely because the proponents of second wave feminism are oftentimes um putting themselves out there as if they're representing a whole lot of different women when in fact they're they're not and so um that's always that had kind of always been my concern um, and, and honestly, it was my experiences at the legal aid clinic that really solidified that for me in my mind, because I, I kind of had this sense of there's something wrong with feminism. There's something that doesn't quite fit. And then I think when I was at the legal aid clinic and was interacting with women that had profoundly different experiences from my own and had profoundly different concerns from my own kind of day to day life concerns, that was when I realized that that was that was the thing that I was trying to 
sort of identify in my own mind. So um, it has led to, I think, my wanting to make sure that that feminism doesn't in any way, um, doesn't in any way, isn't at odds with intersectionality and that okay. feminism is always kind of under intersection intersectionality. Um, because I think when we talk about feminism and when we talk about the oppression of women, I think we're missing the fact that for privileged women, everything is, um, I mean, privileged women are, are more oppressive, I think, in a lot of ways than, um, than lots of other groups of people. So I think, for example, um, and I'm kind of borrowing this from uh, Sarah Marshall, who's talked about this a lot, and this her words have resonated with me. So Sarah, Sarah Marshall, she's um, one of the hosts of You're Wrong About. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's just the title of that alone is is intriguing. It's great. Yeah, it's I. Yeah, it's great. It's probably it's what I'm currently kind of binging my way through. Um, but they talk they talk off and on about the criminal justice system and mass incarceration and what Sarah Marshall has said and what I kind of hear in my head now as I walk into prison, um, because I and I think she's right, is she sort of says, look, this whole system is designed to try and communicate to me that I'm safe. Right. Mm. As saying that as a white as a self-identified white woman. Um and she elaborates on that by saying, and I'm I'm being told this by a system that is trying to get me to trust the people I shouldn't trust and distrust the people that I should trust. Um, and I think that's been my experience as I as you know I've, I've spent many many mornings walking into Stateville and going through the kind of theater of you know going through gates and and you know being taken um, back to spend time with a group of people that are being held captive. Yeah. And I can't help but think that it's all theater to try and communicate to me and people that look like me that we're safe in a way that um is is profoundly harmful and wrong. And so so for me, if if there's a feminism that doesn't acknowledge that, it's not a feminism that we should have. Um hmm. if that Oh absolutely. Absolutely. So well this is good. I, I like that. I mean I think that that's some of the disconnect that womanists, right, are talking about. I remember when I first went to AAR and started learning more about um, you know, what womanism was and how I connected and, you know, just some of their critiques on feminism. And I think that's that missing piece, like you are talking about that intersectionality. Because um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was just, uh, again, just the pragmatics of being a theologian. Uh, well, there's two questions to this. Um, what are some of the ways that, a male dominated uh, a religious sect of evangelicalism um, gets the Bible wrong and particularly different passages that talk about, you know, what women should be. I mean, there's like fierce debates that, that, that go on and people have some really skewed views as it pertains to, uh, at, well, as it pertains to, uh, you know, women in, in theology. So I'm curious about that. And I'm also curious about your own personal experience, um, going to conferences, presenting research, all those nitty gritty things, being in the classroom. I mean, I know you're beloved, uh, uh, but being in the classroom, at least I know when I first got there, man, some of the theology students were just, they were hostile. Uh, but maybe you had a different experience. I don't know. So those, those are two big questions. I hope that made sense. Yes, that all made sense. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with, I'll start with the classroom and then I'll go to the Bible. Cause I think Come on. where I am with the Bible has evolved a lot. And some of it 
has had to do with my experiences in the classroom and my experiences working with students. Um, in the classroom, generally, and I feel like this is getting actually better and better for maybe interesting reasons. I have felt generally treated pretty well. That's good. In the classroom. That's good. That's good. Um, I'm glad to hear that. I have, yeah, I have certainly had students that I've had students from time to time that probably did not want to have a female Bible professor, but I will say, I think to some degree, some of that has, they, some of them self-selected out. There were the occasional student where I was aware that they somehow managed to graduate with our degree and never take a class with me. Um, or there was a case where we had, um, there was one student um, who I knew and, and, you know, we had like we we had certainly spoken before and she was the child of a uh, faculty member over on the seminary side who I also knew didn't know super well. And three or four times she would appear on a roster for one of my classes and then drop off of it before the class started. And so I I kind of figured there had to be something there. And I also kind of assumed it didn't have anything to do with the actual uh, student. But I. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know anything else about that. I never, you know, I never asked about it or kind of inquired into it because it was obviously a little awkward. Um, but yeah, generally I felt pretty uh, treated pretty well um, by students um, and and received, I think, relatively well by students. And I haven't dealt with a whole lot of kind of questions or concerns about um, how I might handle the Bible. Okay. Um, that is less the case. Obviously, that's a little bit less the case in the academy. Um, although overall, I sort of ended up maybe doing my own self-selection in the academy. So I have generally avoided spaces that aren't going to be um, terribly open to the involvement of women. Yeah. Um, you know, I would never, I would, I would never consider um, going to any of the more kind of conservative evangelical meetings for a whole host of reasons, actually. Um, but certainly, one of them is that they are they're not fully affirming of, of women and they're not, um, you know, and so it's just, it's a space that I both don't feel like I would be entirely welcome in, but also a space that I don't feel like I'm missing anything from, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I've been able to kind of navigate that. I mean, it's certainly, I, I have, there have been challenging things, um, here or there at the institution where I have reflected back on my time at Fordham and realized how insulated I was in a, in a good way, in a way that I think was, was healthy and, and necessary. Um, but I think there were certain things that took me by surprise once I got to our institution and I turned around and realized, oh, that's because there were, there were people at Fordham that were really actively working to make sure that those things weren't happening there. Okay. So um, that's good. Yeah. So I did get taken by surprise uh, on a couple things, but I I think it, it, that actually just speaks to how good my graduate student experience was. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yep. I, that's, yeah, again, that's, I mean, you know, uh, talk about this on the show all the time, right? You know, the experience that you have, you know, largely depends on, you know, the direction, right? The leadership that's in place and the and the folks, you know, their their vision um, of that. Um so theologically speaking, where do, where do you where do, where do you find ourselves now as we're, you know, irregardless, 2016 marked uh, a, a major shift. At least that's the argument I make that there's been a, a, a real move towards radicalism, nationalism, uh, a lot of isms. And um, 
where do we find ourselves now? I mean, obviously we've got the Marjorie Taylor Greens on one end that, you know, that openly tout a nationalistic perspective. But then we have uh, just kind of this this interesting middle of people who are struggling with faith and and uh, like, you know, where does this all make sense? I mean, you still have groups like Barna trying to say we can reach the Gen Z's peoples and we can bring them back to the fold. Uh, what is what does that look like for you? Um, I, I don't know. I got some other theological questions, but I, I, I just wanted to start there um, because you hear religion come up a lot. Um I was reading an article the other day. Uh, well, actually, it was a tweet from a guy. I'm forgetting his name. He's a, he's a New York Times author, and he was talking about his experience with Pence living in Indiana. He just And he kind of just laid out just kind of the, the the experience. He was like, at the beginning, he was, you know, really actually really helpful. And, like, we didn't agree on everything, but at least he was, you know, there, and he was showing up, and he really was caring about justice things. But then once he had some kind of transformation, like he started distancing himself from all these things related to justice – I mean, let me start there. What is the what is the bind, the problem that so many evangelicals have with issues surrounding justice and especially the 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 notion or the worldview that says anyone progressive and liberal, they're demonic. <laughs> like, what, where do we go from? Right. Just having different varying opinions, but that the only correct way, right, is a conservative view. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, I think it's power, right? There was a good piece. I read it maybe back in February or March. I think it was around the time they announced um, Jimmy Carter was going into hospice. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the piece, the piece was basically presenting Carter as an evangelical progressive and kind of asking the question about what could have been, right? So what could have been, he was on, He they were putting him out there as one example of somebody on the other side of what, what became a concern conservative progressive divide. Um, and they were suggesting, you know, that his, the direction he went, few people went and eventually kind of died out. Um, but kind of asking the question of what, what might evangelical, what might evangelicalism look like today? If the, if evangelicalism writ large had gone in the direction that he was trying to go in. Um, and you think about it, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's power. Right. So the, the evangelicalism as a as a movement um, married itself to the Republican Party and married itself to a political ideology in the I mean, what, in the 80s, I think, really. Um, and and so it, it got to the point where to be evangelical be, became synonymous with having a whole set of political views. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't always like that. I mean, I think there's some theolo- there's some things that are deeply theological problem, theologically problematic as well, but it wasn't always like that. I mean, even it, 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 and it was when it, when it happened, it was a move for political power, um, both in people that were not themselves evangelical, but realized that if they could get this voting base, they would get, they would broaden their own base and broaden their own power. Um, and I think it was not lost on some evangelicals or maybe many that, um, if they kind of aligned themselves with a particular political power, they might get some of the things that they, they thought they wanted. Um, I I think it, it's nowhere more stark than in the election of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it goes back, it goes back a while. And the problem is, I don't know how you get that out of the church at this point. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't, I, 
I'm not convinced it's fixable. And I think that's why we are seeing so many of our students opt out. Yeah. I mean, every student that I graduated, I think this over the last several years, almost every single student that I've graduated over the last several years definitely likes Jesus, definitely wants to somehow follow Christ and is really unsure about how the church fits into that because they actually, they care about social justice. And so for them, they're looking at kind of evangelical culture and church culture. And I think they're saying this, this isn't it. And I say that I, conservative Catholicism has all of the same problems, both mm. politically, theologically. This is not just evangelicalism. I think this is more of a kind of conservative Christianity problem than a specifically evangelical problem. But um, we're, I think we're seeing a lot of students, and maybe those are students that are self-selecting for our institution as well, but we're all the students I'm seeing don't know um, what to do, what to do about church. And, um, I'd probably be remiss if I didn't mention my incarcerated students, most of whom are deeply, deeply religious, um, also are incredibly skeptical about the church. I mean, I'll, I'll quote one student who last summer said churches have all of the resources in the world, right? So he kind of said churches have more resources collectively than the Gates Foundation does. And he said the Gates Foundation decided that they wanted to wipe polio off the face of the earth. And so he said, so they they went on this vaccination campaign to do that. He said churches could decide that they wanted to, they want to wipe a social evil off the face of the earth and they could do it. So of course he's thinking mass incarceration. Um, and he said, and they're not. And in fact, they don't seem to be terribly concerned about social evils. They seem to be concerned about advancing political power and sometimes cooperating with evils to do that. His his end uh, to this was that he was going to go picket churches when he gets out of prison. Um, but I think I think his point is is accurate. And um, you know, they they tell me pretty consistently that all they hear Christians coming into prison to preach is um, repent of your sins and don't be gay. That's the very consistent message, both <laughs> at the men's and the facilities I've been in. They'll say, yeah, these churches come in and all they do is say, repent of your sins and don't be gay. Repent of your sins and don't be gay. That's the only message that they're getting um, from, from Christians. So yes, I think this is why we have so many, so many, especially so many Gen Zers that look at look at the church and look at Christians and, and aren't sure they want any part of it, even if they look at Jesus and they, they like what they see there. This is deep. This is deep. I appreciate that. I mean, that's yeah. Repent of your sins and don't be gay. Um, I got a couple questions around that. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, like historically, what has been, as you've seen it, as you've looked at, it, as you've researched it, what is just some of the hangups around human sexuality that that uh, particularly have gotten wrong. I mean, you, I mean, Old Testament. I mean, it's the Wild West, right? I mean, you got all kind of things going on there. We talk about it, people who say, "Oh, I want a biblical marriage." Um, I, you know, I don't know. So, I don't know how much of this has to do with just between the differences between right the Old Testament God, the New Testament God, and Jesus. I mean, so what are in your estimation and 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 expert opinion what? What is it about human sexuality? Because it seems like even more so now we are stamping and I, I'm going to put myself we in that. But, you know, conservative Christians are, are stamping this 
I, you know, think about Florida. Think about all the laws that are being passed against, you know, trans students, LGBTQI students. Texas, I just heard, is, is passing this, this new law where you can, like, teachers can physically inspect someone if they're saying, I identify as this, they can, they can check their genitalia, which I'm like, what? What in the yeah. hell is going on here? So uh, yeah. what, what what is it about human sexuality? <laughs> Repent and <laughs> don't be gay. That, I can't figure it out, honestly, because hmm. you look at it and whether it's, I can't figure out why, why this is the thing. And there's so many different versions of this is the thing, right? So, yeah. um, you know what I mean? And so, I mean, even think about like, think about, what the church would consider sexual transgressions that happen among heterosexual people. And yet if you act out of line there, they're going to burn you to the ground publicly if they can. Right. right. And I, you know, and, and I, I mean, I, I've, I, I can't figure out why that is the thing. Okay. Among all of the things that we could be getting upset about. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, and, and I mean, I think the church is coming into the prisons. They're assuming a culture. Um, they're assuming things about the prison culture that they don't understand. Right. So if you go into a men's prison and you preach repent of your sins and don't be gay, what they're, you're, you're, you're demonstrating that, you know, nothing about that context, because at least in the men's facility that I've worked in, there is a deep culture of, of homophobia. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's, mean that every single man that I've worked with in there is homophobic far from it, but there is a, there is a deep threat of homophobia in there. Um, so if you as a church are going in there and preaching, don't be gay, um, you're pretty clearly communicating that you don't understand anything about what happens inside a men's prison, or at least that, that men's prison. Um, and in the women's context, uh, you're just communicating that you don't, you don't see them or understand them hmm. or have thought and about what their lives are like. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and when you go in and you preach that message in a women's prison, you're also preaching that message to people who are almost universally survivors of either domestic violence or child abuse. Ooh, yeah. Um, so, but that's what you're using. That's what you're choosing to talk about. Um, you're, you're going into a group of uh, essentially criminalized survivors of abuse and, and you're preaching to them about, um, who they are and are not in relationship with. But I, I cannot figure out why, why this has become the thing and we're passing legislation around it and we're picketing stores around it. It just, I mean, not we, but they, I, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know why, especially because you, you mentioned, you know, biblical marriage and, and that term gets thrown around a lot, but as I know, you know, um, there's lots of models of marriage in the Bible. Not clear that most of them are good. Um, <laughs> Will, Will Gaffney did a, gave a talk, uh, I think probably 12 or so years ago. Um, she was part of a series on tough texts in the Bible. And I used this talk that she gave in class. Um, and one of the things she points out is that rape abduction is a model of marriage in the Old Testament. And so mm. she says, you know, when we throw words, biblical marriage, well, that's a marriage in the Bible too. And so... Um, that that makes using the term biblical marriage so complicated and yet conservative christians do it all the time as if they as if they know um but <laughs> but this is the problem with the bible we assume it's super clear cut and it's it's very much not and so um and it comes from a it comes from a context there are definitely things i would like the bible to say that i i don't think it says um so it you know we assume we assume that the bible 
is super easy to interpret. I mean, anytime somebody says, well, the Bible's really clear, it's actually not. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fairly clear about things like justice, but I, I think it's a lot less clear on a lot of other things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I 400% agree with you. Um, on that well i mean let's well let's dive into that i mean historically speaking right i mean i think it's 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 rare the argument around christian circles that you know jesus was a jew um and um like how 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 what is what your your view on and your study around the personhood of jesus because for me it comes back to so much of this and i remember i said this at a uh it's one of the reasons why I don't deal well with denominations. I said this at a denominational gathering of, of our institution. Um, and I was just like, you know, I could care less about denominations and religious protocols and whatnot. For me, it, it comes back to, right, the personhood of Jesus, who Jesus was and what he stood for. Um, and automatically, I mean, I just saw people furled eyebrows and, of course, you know, people holding on to those creeds and all that crap. Um, but I'd be curious, right, like what... How have you interpreted like Jesus in in that time? I mean, we have so many different interpretations, right? We got people out here killing other people, literally in mass shootings, talking about this is what Jesus wants. This is what God wants, right? Right. We've had eons of people doing that in God's name. But as you look at Jesus, what are some of the things that A, we get wrong and B, some of the things we might not even know about the personhood of Jesus? I'm sorry. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, I, I've been resonating. Yeah, I've been circling around resonating over the last year or so about the idea of Jesus as someone who resisted empire, right? So I yeah. kind of have thought more about reading him in the context of the Roman Empire and, and as somebody who resisted empire, not by trying to overthrow the Romans as his many of his first century um, Jewish peers would have wanted um, or expected. Um, but as somebody who built an alternative community and and tried to point to the idea that there was another way, um, there was a way that wasn't empire and colonialism. I think the problem and the reason this doesn't get seen very often is that um, American Christians and specifically white American Christians, I think, usually read themselves into the wrong part of the story. You know, anytime you're reading the Bible, I think you are, if you're reading the Bible as a religious person, as a person for whom this text means something religiously, you're going to end up reading yourself into the story somewhere, right? And so I think the problem is that a lot of times when white American Christians read themselves into the New Testament, they're reading themselves in as the followers of Jesus, when probably more realistically, they should be reading themselves in as citizens of the Roman Empire. And, and so if you can read yourself in as a citizen of a Roman Empire, I think then you can see a pretty clear critique of what's what's happening now and what could be. Um, but I think a lot of that's getting missed. And so... Um, and so I, I, that's a that's a perspective on Jesus that I've been thinking about a lot over the last year. And then I think also speaks to at least some of the things I've experienced in religious communities inside of prisons, right? Where those are the individuals that should be reading themselves as the followers of Jesus who are being colonized. I like that. I like that. Um, I was going to bring up, uh, I had to look this up, just uh, one of the books I read a few summers ago was, uh, I'm sure you know him as Catholic theologian, Albert Nolan, uh, Jesus Before yeah. Christianity. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it was a great read. It just helped me better understand just some of the, the context um, around it, because I feel like Jesus' name gets thrown out there 
so often. Um, how do you identify in public spaces? Right, I mean, it feels like right now when because I mean, I'll share. I'll share this. The, um, when I'm out in different spaces, whether it be in different communities, um, I nine times out of ten, I will not say, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian," or I am. You know, I was just like, "Yeah, no, I'll." I, I have theological, spiritual beliefs, but, you know, I'm not, you know, because it tends to then get into, oh, what church do you go to and who's your pastor and this and these things, right? And so, and the other side of that is, is that people are then then start thinking, again, going back to what you were just talking about, be saved, don't be gay. And that's that's what's going to come from you, right, bro? Uh, <laughs> so, um, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be curious to know, like, what, how do you, how do you how do you navigate you know some of those hallways as well right and and or do you you know do you just stand and be like no this is this is what it is I mean I get in the classroom you can unpack it in 16 17 weeks um but it you know that's not so easy when you know out on the street so to speak does that make sense again I, I know I'm kind of just throwing some things out there um but uh, I wanted to ask yeah. you that yeah it totally makes sense I mean I'm I'm struggling with that with exactly how to identify so yeah. I, I don't love the term Christian right now. And it is not because I don't believe in Jesus or don't want to follow Christ. Right. Um, it is because I have watched Christians behave so profoundly badly. Um, particularly recently, particularly in some situations that were close to me, um, where I just in doing and, and behaving badly in the name of Christ. And I think that's the thing, um, so behaving in, in profoundly harmful ways to other people and doing it in the name of Christ in a way that I, I don't really love the term Christian right now. I think if I, so I, if, you know, in the classroom, I, I have this thing I say on the first day of class, because as you know, at our institution, increasingly, um, we are getting more and more students that don't identify as Christian, right, which right, I love. Right. Um, I absolutely. And so I, yeah, I love that. So I will say on the first day of class, hey, um, you know that here your your professors are all Christian. We all identify as Christian. Um, and if you're in this room and you are a Christian, I believe and hope that you will find things here that will help your faith grow and that will matter for your faith. And if you are not a Christian, I still think there are things here that you can learn that will be helpful academically, that will help you grow. Um, and you should just know that it is not... Um, it is not my goal or project to try and talk you into being a Christian. That's not, that's not what we're here to do. Um, because I, I'll get students that come into class with a ton of trepidation about like, I'm, I'm not Christian. I have to take this class on the Bible. Um, this professor is going to try and make me be a Christian. Um, so I'm, I've kind of put that out on the table on day one that, Hey, if you are Christian, there are going to be things that will be really beneficial. That's what I want. Um, and if you are not Christian, I still think there will be things that will be beneficial, but I am not interested in trying to change your religious perspective. Yeah. Um, so I'll say that I'm Christian because in some sense, like for lack of a better term, I, I am. But I, I really struggle with the term because I think it it brings in a whole lot of history and a whole lot of behavior um, that's, that's pretty problematic. Yeah. Um, so if I'm out on the street, I would probably would not generally identify myself as a religious person. If I'm just talking to somebody in general, just out in the world. Um, I mean, if people ask what I do, I, I tell them. And then that I think oftentimes implies something about what I think, but it's, um, 
but I, I just don't. Yeah. Um, it, I, the term is really problematic. So yeah, I don't necessarily identify that way. Yeah. I was filling out a survey. I forget who it was for. And it asked, you know, religious background and, you know, lists a whole bunch of them. And then it says other. And I clicked other and I was just like, huh, comma, it's complicated. <laughs> just, yep. Yeah. Um, I, you know, cause I mean, and I, cause I feel that I feel exactly what you're saying, um, with that. And, and I mean, I'll speak from my own experience being in the black community. It, there is a sense that, okay, you're just, it's assumed that you are Christian. And there's the sense that there's this fundamental rigidity that comes with Christianity and how you should respond when somebody asks you, you know, are you a Christian? Are you, you know, what is your faith? Do you have faith? And, you know, and I don't know, there's, there's so many things I want to do a special on that and, and looking at, you know, some of the, some of the issues that come up for us as black folks who have moved on past the traditional, right? Black church, black Christianity experience, if that makes sense. Right. Um, um, well, let me ask you this, Mary. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, there's, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to gather my thoughts because again, I'm just like, oh, it's rare that I get somebody that's, you know, so, so knowledgeable, but let me, let me, let me ask you this on, on that. How, cause your book, I also want to mention your book, um, because I think you talk a lot about, um, it's called the introduction, Introdu introducing theological method, a survey of contemporary theologians and approaches. So on that note, where do, where, where do we get things wrong when approaching biblical knowledge, theological knowledge? In other words, like what about all the other stuff that is out there, the stuff that didn't make it into the Bible and, and people, I remember growing up as a, as a black Adventist, they were highly against anything that wasn't in the Bible, including, um, the, um, oh, what is it called? My Oxford has it. My Oxford Bible has it. Um, oh, the Apocrypha. Yeah, right? the Apocrypha. Yeah. Right. I remember my pastor telling me, you know, the Catholic Bible, because the Catholics were going to usher in the end of the world and it was all the Pope. And they were like, the Catholics have a different Bible and they have extra books. And those books are from Satan. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I love it. <laughs> yes, right. I know. And it's, some yeah. crazy shit. So I'd be curious, like, you know, the methodological survey, the critical thinking that goes into doing this. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I guess I've always felt like you need two things. If you're going to operate in the world in a Christian way, you need to have two things. You need to have a good ethic and you need to have a good method. Mm. Um, so if your theology doesn't end in a good ethic, you got a problem, right? But you can't have a good theology to get to that good ethic until you have a good method. Um, so you got to have the good method. And I think a lot of times, I mean, a lot of the things that I'm trying to address in that book are what should the questions be? So what questions are we asking? What sources are we pulling from? And yes, we're all pulling from more sources than just the Bible, whether or not we admit that. Um, I mean, Tertullian, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And it's really clear that he's pretty influenced by uh, Greek philosophy, even though he wants to say <laughs> not, right? I mean, it's a classic example, but that's true for all of us. Um, so one of the things I, I think we need to do methodologically is get more explicit about what we're doing. So yeah. actually think through what we're doing and and have a, a have have a process by which we say, okay, what what sources are we going to at least acknowledge that we're drawing on? What kinds of questions are we asking? Where are we starting? Um, 
because I don't think you can do good theology if you don't have a good method. And unfortunately, you know, everybody is a theologian if they're reading and talking about the Bible. But I think a lot of times people are just reading the Bible, assuming that they know what it means, and then making decisions based on that without without really actually trying to figure out where the text came from and making an assumption that, you know, if there's something they want the text to say, that the text doesn't seem to say that the solution is to try and work with the text to get it to say what they want to say, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of exhausted. And this, this was towards the end of my time at Wheaton, but I got kind of exhausted with, for example, the egalitarian complementarian debate, because I both felt like Sure, the complementarians don't seem completely right. It doesn't seem to be the case that the Bible is universally restricting of women. But on the other hand, the egalitarians sometimes seemed like they were doing some pretty crazy gymnastics with the text to just try and make it work rather than saying, hey, this is a text from a particular time in a particular place. And it may be the case that the text says that. And it also may be the case that that doesn't mean that's what we need to do right now. Yeah. Um, And I think that's, you know, if you're committed, if you're as evangelicals usually are, if you're committed to biblical inerrancy, you can't say what I just said. Um, (laughs) So um, luckily, our institution at least affords me the certainly the freedom to say that a lot of a lot of similar peer institutions would not. Right. And would absolutely freak out if I went into class and denied a strict inerrancy. And, And at our institution, I. I, you know, I, I'm free to say to students, look, I think there's normativity and authority in this text. And yet I don't want to do a bunch of crazy stuff to make this text say everything I want it to say and everything that I think maybe in an ideal world it would say. Yeah. And so I can, I can let go of inerrancy and hold to normativity authority. Um, I like that. I like that. That see, that's, that's what I'm talking about because I think, well, I was raised uh, again as a very much King James version. That was the only version you could do. Uh, NIV was demonic. Uh, maybe new King James version, but you better go back to the King James version. Uh, very much, it was uh, it, that inerrancy that the Bible. It all made sense and it all talked to each other and blah 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 blah. And, and, and that that held up right until I myself went to seminary. You know, and in one of my first classes, it's like we're learning about Job and just the 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 incongruencies just at the beginning of that whole chapter. And I'm like, oh, wait, what? Um, so I no, I appreciate that. That's 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 good stuff. Um, well, let me ask you this. I know our time is is, is nigh. And for those of you listening, uh, what you don't know is before I hit record is like uh, the doc and I were having a, a, a grand old conversation and just catching up. Uh, and so we had a whole conversation <laughs> prior to this. Um, but anyways, what what are some of the work you do with uh, with, with the, the whole prison industrial complex? Um, I'd be curious, like what got you into that? And then, you know, and then what are some of the work? Uh, I know you talked about branching out on on your own. I'd be curious about you know what what that and where's that where that is right now. Yeah, yeah. So I've been um, teaching in a master's program um, inside of two different correctional facilities in Illinois. Um, one that was a uh, that is a maximum security men's prison, and one that is a mixed security women's prison. Um, so I've spent. Uh, and I've been doing that particularly intensively for the last year and a half or so since I got back in after COVID. I had started doing that um, prior to COVID and initially got into it both because um, 
my friend was running the program and um, she invited me in. And also because I, I had wanted to work somewhere in this. I mean, that some of it went back to my legal aid days. I mean, when I was considering going to law school, I wanted to go to law school to become a public defender and eventually do appellate defense work. Um, Because I, I, I came out of that legal aid experience with a profound sense um, that the criminal justice system was, was actually deeply unjust. Um, So I, for the last year and a half have been in prisons multiple times a week, every single week. Um, and have now decided um, with a whole bunch of uh, transitions um, happening in the program that I was working in that I'm going to um, hit pause for a couple weeks and then go back into the women's facility as an independent volunteer, um, which just means that I will be um, running a book club or a Bible study um, at the women's facility that I've been in, um, hopefully getting an opportunity to continue um, my relationships um with an advocacy for the incarcerated women I've been working with, and also hopefully to um, build some new relationships with some new incarcerated women that I don't yet know. Um, and both um, hopefully to just go in there and and love them and also advocate for their freedom at the same time, um, oh, because great. I'm not actually loving them if I'm not fighting for their freedom. I love that. Um, I love that. I love that. I love that. I think that is work that needs to continue on and, um yeah there's so much to unpack there uh but this is this has been great i appreciate the time that you've given me i know you're busy uh, i know you said you were teaching is as well uh, i give it to you i've i've uh i i want to say i've retired from summers but it's just like man the summer summer stuff i've definitely not uh if i don't have to teach in the summer i i i, I won't so i give it to you uh for hooking that up uh doc where can folks find you folks want to reach out folks want to give you another book contract i know i know you love writing writing books and and all those great things that is a great question i am not super active on social media right now but i can be found under my own name on facebook um and i frequently can be found under my own name on instagram um i can give you i can send you those handles i do not have a website um at least not as of yet, but, um, but yeah, I can give you those. And also, um, I can give you my email address. No, that, so. that's cool. No, that's cool. I get it. I mean, I'm on team delete me. So I've, I've, I've tried <laughs> to remove as much of my fingerprint online as I can, uh, being on, I think I told you this, I was on the, uh, the professor watch list, that ultra right wing, uh, uh, group that's out there. And so, yeah, yeah. Someone sent them a uh, a copy of one of my podcasts and uh, submitted that. And then, uh, yeah, I was on. And then the- you put it on that list. Yeah, I have started <laughs> to feel like life is so much simpler without a social media presence. Yes. So. Yes. I feel the exact same way. And I feel like I'm old, but I <laughs> will stand in my oldness because I'm like, yeah, no, it's just great. I post memes. That's it. That's it. And yep. I'm on Instagram and that's it. That's all I do is post memes. Um, Well, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time out. Um, And as always, I'll put all these links in the show notes, especially a link to your book. I think people need to read that. Uh, But thank you so much for taking the time out today, Mayor. This has been great. Uh, I think it's just a start. I definitely want to get you back uh, because I feel like we just we didn't even scratch the surface. Yeah, thank you. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and would definitely come back. Excellent. The Chapel Probation Podcast takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities, focusing initially on Azusa Pacific University, where I taught English for 15 years. 
I'm Scott Okamoto, and I'm writing a book about how I deconstructed from faith completely while at APU. This podcast, though, is my tribute to the students and other faculty who survived evangelical higher education. They faced ridiculous racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ hatred, and all manner of bigotry. From the heartless evils of the prosperity gospel to the destructive pseudo-theology of purity culture, the stories will break your heart, but they will also inspire. These people faced bigotry and fought back. In a weird, kind of sick way, we went through some shit, but we formed identities and we formed communities through it all. I hope you will join us.